welcome to a bonus episode of the Franchise Festival podcast where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. For Season 2, we're covering the evolution of Capcom's Resident Evil. You can find us online at FranchiseFestivalPodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Franchise underscore Fest. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or consider backing us at Patreon.com slash FranchiseFestival. Patrons get access to bonus episodes covering series spin-offs, as well as the opportunity to vote on episode topics. Our last bonus episode was uh, the Resident Evil movie by Paul W.S. Anderson. So if you want to get in on listening to that, uh, we had a lot of fun with it, and you can do that by checking out our Patreon page. As ever, we're your hosts, Chris. And I'm Spencer. And this time we're rejoined by special guest... Supernamu! Hooray! Yeah, we're really glad to have you back, uh, Supernamu. We uh, we last got to chat with you on our Resident Evil 3 episode. Yeah, I'm really excited to be back to talk about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we'll have a lot to, uh, to chew on with this one. <laughs> so, uh, without further ado, let's talk Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. So this movie began pre-production in 2017, uh, and uh, the current version of it, the one that was released this year, was written and directed by Johannes Roberts, uh, a person uh, I am not familiar with their other work. I've seen two of his movies, um, 47 Meters um, Deep or Below. It's a horror movie Hmm. about um, two girls who get stranded... um, like down deep below and are terrorized by a shark it's the first one's really good second one is actually kind of good too i highly suggest if you are not like afraid of sharks or like shallow water and all that stuff that's like good you know killer shark movie i actually remember the movie that you're talking about i had no idea that he was associated with that <laughs> i i didn't get to see it myself but i thought it was very funny that they made a sequel to it because it felt kind of like a one and done affair yeah it's not the like no one reprises their role is a definitely uh, completely right. different cast, but they kind of go through a similar situation. But it's even more kind of like terrifying. Yeah, and and I find that kind of an interesting through line because um, Kaya Scodelero, Lord help me, uh, apologies uh, if I butchered her name. Uh, but the woman who plays Claire in this movie was also in another movie where she and her estranged father are terrorized by crocodiles during a flood in uh, Florida, if memory serves. And so there's this, there's this kind of like people being menaced by large uh, seaborne creatures that uh, I guess is kind of like uh, shot through all of this work. eh? Uh, Yeah. The, the the movie's called crawl. Yes. Crawl. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly the one. Yeah. I have, I haven't seen that, but I've heard such good things. It was actually a pretty decent movie. The first time I've ever seen her anything was uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Dead Men Tells No Tales, and then Maze Runner. But yeah, she was actually pretty good in Crawl. Yeah, Maze Runner is what I remember her from. And she was also in that British show, I want to say Skins was the name of it. 
but I could not in good conscience recommend that to anybody. So just stick with uh, <laughs> just stick with Crawl and Maze Runner and uh, maybe Welcome to Raccoon City. Maybe. She has a small part in the film Moon, which is excellent. She does? Yeah, that's the one with Sam Rockwell, right? Yep, it's basically just Sam Rockwell, but she has a credit, so she must show up somewhere for four seconds. You ever notice that Sam Rockwell always dances in his movies? You know, I hadn't until you just mentioned it, but now I'm thinking about it. It's uncanny. Yeah. Even in Iron Man 2, he dances. Good for him. So the uh, the main film company behind Welcome to Raccoon City was Constantine Films, which was the same German studio that produced the Paul W.S. Anderson Resident Evil film series. Uh, so they still have the rights, and uh, Anderson himself was a producer on this one. James Wan, the uh, man behind The Conjuring and Insidious, that sort of, you know, 2010s generation of horror movies, was originally attached to this project as a producer, but dropped out Uh, all the way back in December 2018, so it hadn't gotten too far along when he was involved. The original scriptwriter as well uh, was different from Johannes Roberts. The original scriptwriter was Greg Russo, uh, but he also dropped out in 2018. I guess it was kind of a package deal with him and Juan, uh, because uh, both of them, if I'm not mistaken, went on to work on the new Mortal Kombat movie that came out in early 2021. Uh, So I guess they moved on to Greener Pastures, One of the more interesting aspects of Rousseau's script is that uh, he described his version as being influenced by the tone of Resident Evil 7, which you really don't see in the final product here. Robert's script, on the other hand, as well as his directorial approach, was influenced by John Carpenter's Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, and The Fog, which I can kind of see. Uh, This doesn't really strike me as a John Carpenter kind of movie. But um, I guess there's kind of like a a punchiness and, you know, blood splattering that has a kind of Carpenter-esque vibe. With regard to the Resident Evil games, Robert cited the Resident Evil 2 remake as the biggest influence on how he visualized Raccoon City, as well as the Raccoon City Police Department. And he even tried to use specific camera angles from the Resident Evil remake, uh, the original Resident Evil remake, for the Spencer Mansion. I feel like he's a little bit more successful in capturing the Resident Evil 2 remake. Um, it's like it's prime Resident Evil nerd territory, but I noticed that the statue in the uh, RPD is in the background like it is in the remake, rather than right up at the front of the RPD like it is in the original Resident Evil 2. I would definitely say they did a amazing job for the cinematography. Like mm-hmm. the RPD station looked amazing when they first introduced it and as well as the mansion it was it was really exciting to see those scenes and to see the front desk of outlook and remake 2 and such and the entrance of uh the mansion in remake 1 the stairwells and the red carpet and you know the doors in the side it you know it was really great to see those as far as like using iconic scenes from the games like, he uses the the turning around zombie, and there's actually, there's a really great interview on, I want to say it's Polygon.com this week, with the guy who acts as the turning around zombie, uh, which of course is from the original Resident Evil, and Roberts reproduces it here in the movie. Um, and that guy was so passionate about uh, being the turning around zombie that he specifically sought out the movie production just to be that role. <laughs> like, it's kind of rewarding, because I have to say, like, the turning around zombie is maybe the best scene in the movie. Like, it's, it's really it's creepy looking. an iconic scene. Yeah. It's, 
yeah, it's very iconic. And so to have that, you know, brought to the big screen, mm-hmm. I would have been, I would have loved to have been in the spot too, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Who among us wouldn't want to be the turning around zombie, right? Uh, so yeah, I, I, I did think that the Resident Evil, or rather the Raccoon Police Department was a little bit more kind of like true to the games than the Spencer Mansion. Just because like mm-hmm. the Spencer Mansion, you've got like the entrance hall, like he really gets the entrance hall right. But then, uh, you know, unless I'm mistaken, it didn't have some of the other rooms, like, memorable rooms from the game, like the statue room. I think it had, like, the side room with, um, like, the ticking clock. I think the only memorable room that I can remember is the room where Albert plays the piano, because that is an important scene. You're in right. The original remake and in the original game. But it's Jill who plays the piano. But I, seeing that room was a nice nod to the original yeah that was cool um yeah i i really like that that they they incorporated like the piano and the weird kind of like traps back in because that's such a resident evil thing that hadn't been in any of the previous movies you mentioned the job they did on the parking garage of the rpd because i thought they did a really good job with that as well yeah that's true that's that is much more reminiscent as well of the resident evil 2 remake parking garage than the parking garage in the original game which was you know, kind of dinky and claustrophobic. Much as I love Resident Evil 2, don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, it, you're right, Spencer. It was very true to that uh, RE2 make design. There are like real specific instances where they tried to copy frame for frame like a scene from the games. I think that was generally well done. Even the the trucker eating that greasy cheeseburger at the opening is like exactly the <laughs> same right. as the opening to RE2 remake. That was so good. Yeah, it's a real, uh, it like it's it's a real like art imitating life with that that cheeseburger looking like uncomfortably accurate in the Resident Evil Two remake, and then you know life imitating art with them translating it back into live action for the movie. <laughs> so uh, Roberts uh, liked uh, Paul W S Anderson's movies, but wanted to bring a darker, scarier tone that was more in line with the source material. Uh, and and so he really tried to uh, to to approach it more as an adaptation of the games than as its own thing, which, as we talked about in our uh, our bonus episode on the Resident Evil movie from 2002, that's really kind of its own like sci fi horror thing separate from the series. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic delayed the start of production. This was planned to start in early 2020, but they were still doing casting at that time. And then uh, shooting for the movie got pushed all the way back to October 2020, uh, at which point it ran until about December of the same year in Ontario. And then they did some reshoots in May 2021. The critical reception was largely poor. It's currently sitting at a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes at the time of recording. So uh, this movie has not gone down as quite the um, the instant horror classic that maybe uh, folks were were looking for. The audience score for the film is much higher. It's all the way up to 69% audience score. Really? Yep. That's interesting. Yeah, I would have figured that the audience score might have been driven down by, you know, folks like us, like Resident Evil enthusiasts going to see it and being like bummed that it didn't, you know, hit this or that marker. Or it's the opposite. Only Resident Evil fans went to see this, and they're just happy to see all this Resident Evil stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it is. I will say, when I went to go see it in the theater, it was really empty. <laughs> yeah, same. And I went on a Friday. 
We did too. You know, I think it's funny. Spencer and I saw it together um, because we live pretty close together. And um, yeah, I, I was really surprised at how empty the theater was. Although like we kind of tried to plan that because I don't know about you, Damu, but we tried to see it on Black Friday so that like oh, while everybody else was out too. shopping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll see it when everybody else is out shopping and we won't be quite as endangered. <laughs> Most of our movie theaters are connected to um, malls, so we was really trying to avoid that, and we had to, like, drive out of our way to, like, a random theater in our town, and, yeah, it was just, like, super empty. It was kind of creepy. <laughs> ah, well, let's let's say that it contributed to the atmosphere, maybe. Yeah. I think there's also some technical problem. I mean, this is speculative, but there's some technical problems with how this was filmed, I think, that critics probably pay more attention to than audience, so... I just want to get this out there because it was a pet peeve of mine as I was watching it. And I hate to contradict you, Namu, because I know you praise the cinematography. There's a transition they do multiple times in this film where it'll be like a wide shot of a scene and it'll hold it. And then it will do a really strong zoom in on part of that wide shot to transition to the next scene. But it's just a digital zoom. And as it zooms in, the footage gets grainier and you can see the whole frame shaking because the camera is not secured properly enough for zoom that strong. It's like super amateurish and it bothered me every single time it happened. Oh my gosh, I never even noticed. Don't quote me on this, but I feel like that might be one of those Carpenter-esque touches because that feels very in line with like 1970s cinema more so than, you know, like modern movies all have, you know, like the, the zooms on dollies and all of that sort of thing. But, um... I, I got kind of a kick out of that. Like, it, it does have this kind of, like, amateurish quality to it. I think, I'm thinking of one in particular where they zoom in, um, like, outside the RPD, and it zooms in to show uh, Chief Irons in his office. And, like, yeah, like yep. you said, Spencer, you can kind of see the shaking of the camera, and I, I, I kind of ate that up. But it's inconsistent, because the whole film's not shot that way. Like, sometimes they do right. that, and then sometimes they just do, like, real normal cuts that work perfectly fine. I think that overall, uh, I, I enjoyed the cinematography too, truth be told. But yeah, there there are some kind of quirks. And I suspect that some of the challenges associated with shooting during COVID uh, mucked up some of the um, the production on this movie, as the, uh, the limited information that we have suggests. Uh, but that's purely speculative. And uh, I suspect we may talk more about it uh, a little later on. As for the story, I uh, just want to get out in front here, and I want to uh, let listeners know this will be very spoiler-heavy. Uh, we're going to uh, to talk through this story, and, uh, you know, you probably know what you're getting into when you go to a Resident Evil movie, but just in case you want to be surprised, uh, you will not be after listening to this podcast. So um, if you are interested in seeing it, see it before you listen to this. And if you aren't that worried about it, listen along. So uh, the setup here, Raccoon City is a crumbling Rust Belt town. Uh, Umbrella Pharmaceuticals used to be 
uh, the big industry there and the main job source, but they are in the process of pulling out of the town and relocating, uh, leaving a lot of folks unemployed. I thought this was a very cool detail, just like as a person who, you know, has lived like in and around Rust Belt towns in the United States. I thought this was kind of a a neat riff on, um, you know, a different way that the corporate cruelty of Umbrella could express itself. Same. Uh, There's a I I was trying to do some Googling to figure out what the term for this is, because this film does something. Shipping is not the right term, because I think that's explicitly (laughs) like a romantic thing in fan fiction. Right, right, right. This takes a lot of characters and things from the first two Resident Evil games and finds a way to like insert them into one another's lives in a way that is not quite accurate to the games. Interesting. So Chris and Claire Redfield grow up as orphans that is run by William Birkin. And this is poorly explained, but Chris or William Birkin sort of adopts Chris too. He's like a father figure in Chris's life. Uh, and Lisa, true sure, half baked plot point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Lisa Trevor also lives in this orphanage. So they've got yeah. the Redfields, Lisa Trevor, and William Birkin all mashed together uh, into the same backstory here. Lisa Trevor, for um, you know, folks who aren't familiar, is a uh, character from the Resident Evil remake who um, was a young woman who was experimented on by Umbrella and turned into something of an immortal monster. And William Birkin was the uh, umbrella researcher who developed the G virus. And he's kind of the center, central antagonist of Resident Evil 2. Yep. Uh, so here, this is uh, played as a twist later, but we find that Birkin has been basically abducting some children out of his orphanage to run mm-hmm. experiments on under the guise of, you know, them getting adopted. Uh, yeah, pretty gross. Yeah, but that's fast forwarding a little. Uh in the timeline of the film, we've got Albert Wesker, Jill Valentine, Chris Redfield. I don't think we ever get a last name for Richard, uh, but we get also get Brad Vickers, the helicopter pilot, and Leon Kennedy, uh, and Chief Irons as the faces of the Raccoon Police Department. Claire uh, has become estranged from Chris Redfield, and she returns to Raccoon City um, because of a video that she received from Ben Bertolucci, who informs her that Umbrella had some kind of incident ahead of time or more specifically, that they poisoned the water supply of the town by dumping in it illegally. And that's why they're yeah. pulling out in the first place. And in the process of shutting down and moving, there was some kind of uh, biocontamination incident. And that's how we get the release of the G-Virus here. Right, right. The zombie outbreak occurs. We see it kind of go over the threshold. There's a scene at the beginning when Claire breaks into Chris's uh, house where we see the neighbors are extremely sick. Um, before them, you know, starting to display our zombie-like behavior. So I think it's supposed to imply that the folks of the town have been getting extremely... Well, actually, I don't know if it's implied. I don't think they've been slowly turning into zombies this whole time. Maybe that was supposed to show the effects of the water poisoning that's causing Umbrella to leave. It's a little hard to tell. Yeah. It seemed to be like, you know, they were exposed to it, but it was like a slow process because there's a scene where... um the neighbor breaks into Chris's house right. and attacks Claire and the neighbor's son, I think is runs into the house and like is under the table telling Claire that she's the one who needs help. Like they still seem to have like that, you know, normal brain function kind of. So true to the games, once the zombie outbreak occurs, we've got Wesker uh, working. Well, actually Wesker's not working with umbrella in this. He's working with a 
Ah, God damn it. I keep messing this up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'll cheer for the games at least. Umbrella Paramilitary Quarantines the Town uh, Mm -hmm. would be planned to basically completely level it the following morning, giving our protagonist here a a ticking clock to run against. Yeah, one night. It's it's structurally, it's split into kind of two halves. We get the main stars team investigating the Spencer Mansion. And then we have Leon Claire and Chief Irons trying to escape the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two paths do eventually converge, uh, but what we're based we're, we're essentially getting RE one and RE two happening simultaneously for the bulk of the middle of the film. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that it um, it does something that, to the best of my knowledge, only Resident Evil Zero had done before, um, and this is fresh in my mind since Hamilton and I were just covering it for the show. But um, it kind of combines the settings of uh, downtown Raccoon City and the, uh, the the police station with the Spencer estate and the sort of rural umbrella operations in the Arclay Mountains, because all of our characters end up converging in that underground lab, even though really in Resident Evil 1, you go to an underground lab and in Resident Evil 2, you go to an underground lab, but the two don't seem to be connected. We've also got a B-plot of William Birkin uh, running around with his family trying to secure the G-virus sample. This is used to give us a you know a little bit of characterization of Birkin because now he's tied to Chris and Claire's uh, plot. But mm-hmm. the big purpose of this is to just have him eventually tie back in at the end as the, the kind of final boss of the film when we get, when we get G-Birkin. Yeah, I think the way that they come together, it's... Um... It's, it's like Wesker is trying to get the, uh, the G-virus samples for, as it turns out, Ada, uh, in kind of a cool reversal from the games. Um, and Birkin is trying to make his way to his lab to also secure the virus samples. And so we end up with this confrontation between William Birkin and uh, Wesker, where Wesker guns down Birkin, then guns down Annette, uh, Annette Birkin, and then himself is gunned down by Jill Valentine, and Birkin transforms into the uh, the G monster from the uh, from the games. At that point, of course, uh, Birkin ends up chasing all of our protagonists onto a train, uh, along with his daughter Sherry. And uh, who is it? It's Chris Redfield, uh, Claire Redfield, Jill Valentine, and uh, Leon Kennedy. Sherry, uh, Sherry Birkin, all five of them escape together on a train leaving Raccoon City for its neighboring township underneath a mountain. And uh, then the uh, Raccoon City, of course, is blown up uh, by Umbrella. Did that sequence where the town is blown up by Umbrella seem kind of odd to either of you? It was underwhelming. Yeah. (laughs) I was expecting a really, really big, big explosion kind of like you think games and it was just kind of it was just it just it wasn't really anything to be honest everything just kind of collapsed it looked like there was a giant hole under the city that umbrella somehow just caved in yeah i i don't know if we were meant to like understand that but um yeah it, it i i had a hard time actually telling what was going on when the city was being destroyed um it seemed almost like an unfinished visual effect like, the, the mansion collapses, and, like, there's a shot of the countryside where, like, a cow goes floating up into the air. It's just, it's it's very hard to parse exactly how Raccoon City is destroyed at the end of this movie. We should camp out on that cow for a minute. 
Because that'll also lead to a bigger discussion about the quality of CG in this. Uh Uh-huh. So in the scene that Chris is describing where we see like a countryside kind of explode, in the foreground of it, there is a really poorly like 3D animated cow superimposed over this. Uh Uh-huh. And like the lighting on it's different. So it was clearly added after the fact. Where my assumption of what happened here is that because it was unclear, like, what exactly was happening destruction-wise, someone mm-hmm. decided to add this in after to try to communicate it. So what we get is, to show that the ground is sinking, the cow just suddenly is floating in the air as the ground drops <laughs> out from underneath it. Oh, and then that's it, what was supposed to be happening. Okay. I think so. And then it <laughs> implies, like, a strong blast because then the cow just comes flying toward you like it's night of the twister yeah the the whole raccoon city destruction sequence is pretty odd and and uh, like you said nama very underwhelming um it's it's very hard to parse um what what was what was the plan for how it was supposed to look and it's hard not to get the impression spencer as you said that uh some of the visual elements of this were added a bit hastily in post-production like parts of this movie simply don't hang together yeah i'm worried i'm really i'm not selling how ridiculous that cow looks it's very it was very much an afterthought i think what upset me the most about the whole sequence is just that that's such a major moment in resident evil like most of the Mm -hmm. games end with a countdown of having to get the main characters out of wherever they are before the place explodes and it's such a right monumental moment in both Resident Evil 2 and 3 um and 1 as well but especially just 2 to you know escape Raccoon City via train um you got like less than five minutes before it's a place to explode and just see that you know the huge mushroom cloud and fire everywhere and the whole place just gets destroyed and and this one it just kind of just goes down literally into the ground yeah, they dropped, I don't know, the CGI in general was, like, fairly weak. Because we mentioned the cow and the destruction. The, you can tell, some scenes they have pretty good uh, practical effects. Mm-hmm. But in scenes when you can tell that they leaned on the CG for the effects, it they all look pretty rough. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, when we went and saw it, Spencer, uh, you pointed out, like, there there are two, like, two scenes where the the zombified crow is really heavily emphasized and one of them it's plainly a cg crow and one of them it looks to be a uh, like a practical effect crow uh when it's it's a practical effect when it's kind of like hanging out on the downed um i guess it's not a downed helicopter in this one but it's it's hanging out when uh like jill and wesker and all go to investigate the spencer estate and that one looks much creepier than the cg one that's just kind of sprawled in the streets uh, i think you're onto something with that yeah because the scene where it's on the it's a flipped over cop car we just right, see its that's head it, that's it. and it looks really creepy so it's pretty clear like a model or a puppet and it looks pretty good the scene where you see the whole crow it's it, it, toward the early part uh the stars members are hanging out in a diner and a crow flies into the window and dies and we get a lingering shot of the crow kind of writhing around on the sidewalk mm-hmm. and that is cg and it looks terrible and it's just really weird because even if it's bad, like having that stuff done by an animation studio is not cheap. So that was probably a fairly expensive thing to include. 
Hmm. I don't know why they included it. Because we already had a scene in that diner with the waitress's uh, eyes bleeding to communicate yeah. that the virus has spread. And we've already seen an instance of a uh, a dog infected with the T-virus. So we right, already right, know that it's spread get, to like, animals, too. Yeah. And attacks the guy after drinking the zombie blood. So yeah, it didn't really add or show anything. But it definitely took away from it because it didn't look good. And it was ex- probably expensive. So... It was an unfor- it was a bad choice. This movie's got a lot of those like weird choices that didn't work, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and and again it's it's pure speculation, but it's very hard not to wonder if like the challenges associated with working on a movie set during a pandemic played into that. Uh like uh one of the things that that kind of bugged me about this is that there's an entire um like subplot with Claire Redfield's history. And so she's in the orphanage. Uh, she kind of befriends is a strong word, but forms uh, an, an acquaintance with uh, Lisa Trevor, uh, you know, kind of a spooky uh, figure who wanders around the orphanage at night. Uh, and then Claire Redfield is uh, pulled away by William Birkin and his uh, like, you know, orderlies and so forth in the middle of the night he tells her that she's going to be adopted and it turns out that she's actually being taken down to like this underground experimental lair, like really kind of dark stuff. But then the scene ends with young Claire just sort of like walking rapidly away from the orderlies headed out of the room and William Birkin shouting like, catch her, catch her. And that's about all we get of the Claire backstory. It's this very odd, like, hanging thread that we're kind of, we're just left to infer, like, oh, she did get out there. But that scene does not have the cadence of a scene where a person escapes from somewhere. It looks like she's just about to be grabbed by the orderlies again. Like, it's, it's, you almost get the impression that they only had so much time to shoot the scene. And uh, just kind of called it a day once they got it, once they got enough takes. I definitely feel like with the lack of, I guess, plot information story or whatever related to that it made me question like yeah why she was estranged to chris like did like does chris not know what (laughs) happened like if he i felt like if he had known he wouldn't have saw birkin as like a you know a father figure and such and it's just like left me wondering like okay what happens after this because obviously she doesn't tell chris or obviously something happens where they're separated for a good right. chunk of time and then it's just like it's not enough information was given with the backstory of that and i was left confused about everything related to their past yeah i agree wholeheartedly like it's it's a plot hole you could drive a truck through uh you know a, a zombie infested truck as the case may be it's um like it I, I don't I don't get too bogged down in like minor continuity errors with movies, especially B movies, because it can be fun. But when your characters' relationships and motivations are undermined by what you've presented on screen, like you you have failed in kind of an interesting and fundamental way as a filmmaker. And that kind of feels like what happened here with uh, as you said, Nama, with with Claire and Chris, like their relationship is so ill-defined in this. Like, how did, how did Chris become, like, taken under the wing of William Birkin? Like, why didn't William Birkin experiment on Chris Redfield next? It's just, like, it, it, there's, this, there's this gap in time between when Claire is being taken down to the lab and when the movie starts that just 
doesn't have anything in it. It's like a vacuum of plot. I feel like it's worth kind of dwelling for a moment on the um, the actors' performances too, because as thin as the script is sometimes, uh, I feel like some of these actors really turn in pretty top-notch performances, uh, and other ones less so. The reason why I think of this now is that Chris Redfield, like, bless his heart, I don't know the actor's name, he's he's vanilla ice cream. You know, like, there, there's just, there's not a lot there. Uh, he's he's just kind of, and, you know, that, that sort of speaks to his character in the games. I don't think Chris Redfield has a lot of character in the games either. Um, whereas Claire Redfield, uh, played by uh, Kaya Scudlero, is... Uh, kind of magnetic in this movie like she is consistently engaging whenever she's on screen even if the script doesn't give her a ton to work with if it's any consolation um there isn't really much to chris in the other resident evil movies either true by uh anderson that one that's i always forget that he's in those yeah he doesn't show up until like the last two or so movies and it's just kind of a couple scenes here and there yeah, he's useless. Truth be told, it, he is maybe my least favorite character from the Resident Evil game series. Uh, I feel like he takes up a lot of a uh, lot of screen time, and like, why don't we get more Claire? Why don't we get more Jill? You know, just just get Chris out of here, and get uh, some of our other uh, protagonists back in who are more interesting. Jill's actress, um, Hannah John Common or Cayman. Ah, oh, jeez, I wish I was better at pronouncing names. Hannah John Common does an incredible job. Uh, and the actor who plays um, Chief Irons does a great job, too. Yeah, I'm going to look him up real quick because he turns up in a lot of movies. He's like, he's a really great character actor. Yeah, Donald Logue. He's from uh, Sons of Anarchy, Vikings, uh, Gotham. He's also in Ghost Rider, David Fincher's Zodiac, and Max Payne. Yeah, Max. Oh, this is not his first video game adaptation. <laughs> Uh, he just, like, he turns up as kind of like a, a bit part in a lot of movies. He's got kind of a bigger role here than he does sometimes. Um, and he really, he chews the scenery something fierce. Namu, did you want to uh, did you want to kind of take the lead on talking about how some of these characters changed? Sure. So, um, you know, the differences from the source material is really obvious from like the very beginning. Um, we it's already known that Chris and Claire are orphans; uh, their parents died right. when they were young. But being raised in Raccoon City is already a major change. Um, being raised. In the orphanage, which I believe the orphanage is only in remake two. Um, That's true. Yeah, the orphanage never turned up before that. Yeah, and then being raised by Birkin, um, that's that was you know in the first five minutes it was already like whoa okay that's that's just big and I'm always here for major changes but that like really threw me off immediately. Um, yeah, but you know 
seeing them being raised in an orphanage run by Umbrella, which is kind of true, if I remember correctly, in Remake 2, the orphanage is just a cover for, um, I guess, some of the kids being tested by Umbrella because there's a few notes here and there in orphanage when you play there as Sherry that you can find talking about uh, such and such friend was taken away and hasn't been seen ever since um, in the middle of the night and such. So it's supposed to be like some sort of, I guess, um, area where Umbrella has been experimenting on these children for their experiments. But um, Yeah, exactly. That's my recollection, too. I don't know. It's just having Birkin run the orphanage and being considered a father figure to Chris and Claire in the very beginning they um and just seeing Lisa Trevor there I was just kind of really thrown off but it was just overwhelmed by so much change immediately I couldn't get past the fact that Lisa Trevor was at the orphanage with them I was like um okay it was it was weird because Lisa only shows up in one remake one and at the mansion right right so um that was wild and the relationship between Kristen and Claire that's already established when Claire shows up at Chris's house uh that estranged relationship is also vastly different because in the original Claire comes to Raccoon City to uh find her brother because she hasn't heard of him for right, a while right. um and she's very worried but in the movie she's coming here to get answers about Umbrella and what's been going on from the conspiracy video that she came across by Ben in the chat rooms. As they, uh, Chris doesn't know what's that about. He doesn't know what the internet is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what is this and internet you're speaking that, of? That was really funny. Uh, yeah, that, that was, there were some kind of fun nods to like it being the like late 1990s, which was kind of cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that estranged relationship was also really, really different. Um yeah, the total opposite the... of like what we see in Code Veronica, right? Where like they're they're tight, you know, like yeah. Chris and Claire are one of the closest relationships of the source material. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's small, but just the way she comes into Raccoon City is also different. She's picked up by the trucker, mm-hmm. which is really really cool. I like I don't mind that change because it's a nice nod to the trucker and the hill hitting yeah. the lady on the highway and back and she's gone or already zombified and such i thought that was really cool um because in yeah, the original creepy. she comes in on the motorcycle and we do see that motorcycle later on so it's cool that she still gets access to it um mm-hmm. but yeah just the relationship between chris and claire was really vastly different in the beginning another major difference yeah. was uh the lack of barry and rebecca Barry Burton's a very important character yeah. in Resident Evil Remake 1 um, in OG Resident Evil and technically Resident Evil 3. He shows up in the last five seconds of that game. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the helicopter. And to have a lack of Barry Burton um, because his storyline is integral to the, I guess, um, betrayal of Wesker in uh, RE1. So to have that relationship, because he's good friends with Jill as well, to be gone is kind of... Yeah, they kind of abandon that whole thing, right? Like, they they abandon the entire, like, 
Wesker as this kind of like secret agent guy who's manipulating a bunch of stuff. Like in this, Wesker is a guy who's being manipulated. And I don't know if that's what led to them ditching Barry because he is manipulated by Wesker. And if Wesker is being manipulated, then maybe there's not as much a role for Barry in the mansion incident. Uh, I don't know if it's like kind of a knock on effect of like one change affects another change, but it is wild to ditch Barry Burton, one of like the fan favorite characters from the Resident Evil series. Yeah, and like you know, okay, abandoning Rebecca, it's it's fine. <laughs> she's only like in two games in a movie, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Barry, yeah, he's an important character to the storyline, and um, in turn with Wesker too, and just. I for the longest time I didn't know that was even Richard because they didn't even say his name until like as far as I remember um, yeah. after he's getting eaten and Chris is yelling his name and I was like oh that's supposed to be Richard because this entire time yeah Richard has like a weirdly big role in this movie like they, he doesn't get a lot of lines or say anything but like he's in a lot of this movie like the entire time I thought that I was like oh they made Barry grow out his hair. That's cool. <laughs> I, I, right. I assumed that was Barry. Yeah, Spencer, didn't you? You had the same reaction, didn't you? Like, you, you thought that was Barry too, right? Yeah, yeah, I had the exact same thing happen. I was really surprised by, like, how faithful they were, seemed to be trying to be to the games, only to see Barry looking so weird. And then, as you said, <laughs> after he gets eaten and someone says something like, they ate Richard, I'm like, oh, wait, that's Richard? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was so confused. Yeah, they decided to ditch Barry and go all in on Richard Aiken. Because after, you know, this entire time, you know, the obvious differences is the physicality of each character. The characters don't look like how they do in the right, original. Right. And I don't care about that. Um, I thought it was really, really cool. Um, but I really thought that was Barry. And I was just thrown off. I was like, oh, <laughs> we have emphasis on Richard. Okay, cool. Um, but Very strange. just the lack of it. And that leads into Wesker being completely changed. And this is probably like one of my biggest issues with the differences uh-huh. is the lack of backstory on Wesker. This movie portrays Wesker as some random cop who might have been scouted by a third party to steal the mm-hmm. virus from Umbrella. But, you know, in the original, he's an original uh scientist at the mansion and is recruited by umbrella to take over the stars team and to you know that whole betrayal and everything and uh, that's there's nothing there this wesker doesn't have any idea about what umbrella's been doing he's confused about what's been going on at the mansion he's conflicted about betraying Jill and the team and that's not the Wesker we know in games. The Wesker we know there's no redeeming qualities of Wesker. He's he's an evil villain. There's they kinda almost like I don't know the word, but they gave him like a redemption in this movie, like a redemption arc of some sort at the end when he was dying. He's like, I wouldn't shoot a kid. And Jill is like, you know, crying and he's saying sorry to Chris. It almost like takes back everything that's ever happened in the games. Like the Wesker we know, he's killing and everyone and trying to do complete global saturation and Resident Evil 5 and such. And just kind of disappointing. <laughs> complete global saturation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we have uh, we have Resident Evil Five coming up on the show, and I'm I'm looking forward to talking about Wesker's like super villain <laughs> turn in that. I'm a big fan of him, so it was disappointing. Yeah, it's the Wesker change is one of the more um, hard to understand 
about the direction that they went with this uh, because there's nothing in the movie that would be undermined by having Wesker have his role from the games. Uh, like the the only thing that might be undermined a bit is that kind of inexplicably Jill is romantically interested in Wesker in Welcome to Raccoon City. Oh yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that that's really odd. And so maybe like maybe it would kind of undermine that, but that's that's pretty flimsy as far as the plot goes. And everybody treats his um his betrayal, which in the movie is simply being told that he has a way out of the city and going for it. Everybody treats that in the movie as like this really intense betrayal of the team, but he invites the team to go with him. It's it feels like there was a version of this script where Wesker actually was a more sinister traitor, and the back half of the script still treats that as the case, but the front half of the script has Wesker as this kind of like well-meaning doofus who is being led along by a third party who turns out to be Ada. It's it's a really kind of inexplicable creative decision with Wesker that's hard to understand and is is made even more hard to understand by the post credit sequence where they clearly imply that Wesker is going to turn into the supervillain in future movies that he is in the games. So, like, why make him this kind of vaguely sympathetic figure here? Yeah, the changes to Wesker were pretty bittersweet for me. I did... I kind of enjoyed the change to his character because we haven't mentioned it, but we get a lot, some scenes showing a lot of like camaraderie between the stars members and the way they all interact with each other is really fun and endearing. And that was my favorite part about the resident evil book that we covered. Right. Uh, And they do it here. So I like that. I, I kind of like Wesker being like this fun guy that's getting along with his team. The problem is, is that that's really at odds with that betrayal because they don't like any groundwork for why he would want to do that there's some like as you mentioned say oh well you know you'll get out we'll get you out of here and at some point jill asks and he's like well for money and to get out of this like shitty town but like that doesn't seem like they don't set up him as a character that's like desperate for the money or is greedy or even genuinely hates raccoon city he's just like this affable guy who's friends with his you know the people that he works with and like that's kind of it i wonder if part of this was a casting problem like tom hopper is super charismatic as wesker like he's i mean you know like a lot of the the primary actors in this movie like really charismatic and likable and so i i wonder if there were some kind of like script changes around it or if they had a hard time selling like tom hopper as this sinister figure and changed it i don't know pretty strange That's a good way to put it. Like, they tell us what his motivations are for the betrayal, but they don't sell it. They don't sell it at all. I feel like it could have, you know, gone along the lines of him being charismatic and nice and cool and hanging out with his coworkers and such. And then, like, you know, the betrayal would have been even more uh, devastating if, you know, at the moment when he's with Jill and he, like, opens up the passageway, that's when you see the true Wesker. Like, I feel like they should have gone down that route. And be like, whoa, okay, so he wasn't actually really nice and he didn't actually like them at all or anything, you know. Yeah, and that could easily have been done with the movie that we got. Like, you just, you strip out a couple scenes where he, like, he finds that Palm Pilot in the locker. Like, you strip out a couple of scenes from Wesker's perspective and you can have a really cool villain turn with him in that scene where he opens the, um, opens the, the hatchway and starts making his way down to the lab. 
you know, it, it could have been like Resident Evil 1. And it's, I, I, I haven't read an interview or anything about why they changed his character so much, but it is one of the more intriguing and messy changes that this movie makes to the source material. Also, I don't really know the backstory of his sunglasses, but in the post credit scene, <laughs> he can't see, I guess because of the, uh, the infection that is now running through his body, and Ada gives him the sunglasses so he can see. And I was confused about how he was able to see with those sunglasses, because I think what in the original game, does he just wear it all right, always? Like... He just wears, yeah, he's, he's, he's one of those guys, you know, (laughs) like I always, I always like that you find that archival picture of him in the first Resident Evil where it's all like the kind of nerdy researchers standing around at Umbrella and it's him and his dark like aviator sunglasses in the midst of them. (laughs) Chris and I talked about this. I think, I think what that scene was trying to imply was that Wesker has like supervision now and he was just mm-hmm. being it was like a sensory overload from all the light getting into his eyes. So the sunglasses blocked enough out that he could see again. Yeah, it could be. It was it was a nice nod to him wearing sunglasses, I'll definitely say. Yeah. I speaking of nice nods, uh there are like there are a lot of kind of little Easter eggs in this movie. And like some of them are a little little um maybe over the top like uh jill talking about like a jill sandwich and and so forth which are kind of <laughs> cute but a bit much i did like that that post credit scene is an echo of the um like the kind of arcade attract screen on the resident evil remake where like there's a person in a body bag coming back to life in like this spooky morgue um that plays when you start up the resident evil remake and you know in that uh, you know, you hear a shot and the body bag falls back down. But in this case, it turns out that it's Wesker in the body bag and he's been revived by Ada. I thought that was uh, a really slick little uh, little twist there at the end. So another major difference is Leon's personality. Yes. In this movie, he's a bumbling idiot who's, it's his first day. You would have thought that <laughs> he was still in the academy <laughs> with how he acts in this movie. And I actually like that. I like bumbling idiot Leon versus, you know, first day on a job, rookie Leon, who already got, you know, everything together and he's, you know, not too phased by everything in the game. Like, he is, you know, he's obviously, he's like, whoa, what's going on? Zombies, liquors, yikes. But, you know, it's not, he's not really freaking Mm -hmm. out at everything. But in this movie, he is. And I actually really like that. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think Leon is one of the highlights of this movie. Yeah, it was, it's his, the direction that they went with Leon, I thought was really great. My favorite scenes is after he, uh, she's working with the rocket launcher and they're like, hey, where'd you get that? He's like, hey, I found the rocket launcher. <laughs> just random rocket launcher on the train. And he's just super happy about it. <laughs> he finally is the one to save the day instead of being saved. Like he's been like the damsel in distress the entire movie, being saved by Claire constantly. Yeah, and he finally, he finally makes good. Yeah, I, I really like um, that he kind of starts out as this, like, hungover drunk on the first day of his job, which is a really odd element to Leon, too. What I do like um, is the scene with Leon in the bar. is a nice nod to the bar in the original game um, that you go to where Brad, uh, where Jill first bumps into Brad in Resident Evil 3. So it's nice to see that bar. What bothered me most, and I guess it's just because of, you know, our current times and going through this pandemic when the 
lady, her the blood starts, you know, coming from her eye, and no one like he's he sees it and he's asking her if she's okay mm-hmm. and such, and she's like, yeah, I'm fine. But I'm like, okay, you're handling his food. You just gave him some yeah. coffee, and you got blood coming from the eyes. And I was just disgusting the entire scene. I was like, no one is caring about the fact that there's blood coming from her face. And he just, she just gave him some coffee. He's not freaking out enough for me. We're in a pandemic. I'm going to need you to keep your gloves on. That was going through my mind the entire time. I was just disgusted. But it was really cool at the same time. Maybe it's the most 1998 thing about it. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good point. I, I, it's funny, I... As much as I didn't like, like, the transitional scenes where, like, I wanted zombies in this movie earlier. I felt like there was a lack of zombies. Like, you really mm-hmm. only see the zombies in the mansion. And that that entire scene of Richard um, slash Barry getting <laughs> killed by the zombies. So that entire scene, um, all of it is really, really great. But yeah. I feel like the lack of actual zombies in Raccoon City... Um, it was a terrible choice, in my opinion. I felt like there shouldn't... After we see the kind of transition scene from a dying neighbor to an actual zombie attacking Claire at Chris's house, I feel like all the zombies after that should have been like actual zombies. Exactly. And not just, you know, citizens of Raccoon City going to the police department because they're dying and they're confused and kind of zombified, but still got brain functions. Yeah, that feels like where where it should have changed, like switched into high gear and, and it, it still doesn't for a while. Like after um, the truck driver walks into the RPD on fire, which was a really cool scene, um, and scaring Leon and getting shot by irons, I felt like <laughs> that is, after that point, that's when it should have just been brain-eating monsters. Yeah. As far in as their uh, defense, one, oh, sorry, so in their defense, filling the cityscape with zombies would have probably been expensive, and this movie did not have a high budget. That's true. The budget was around twenty-five million, which, I mean, it's not that's not like indie movie territory, but a major studio film is like almost always over fifty, like at least. So this has less than half the budget of. You know, I guess like a air quote, high production value film. Yeah, I feel like, though, if they could have done it for the Paul W.S. Anderson movies, which were also kind of on a shoestring budget, like they could have done it here. Chris, the Paul W.S. Anderson film had a bigger budget than this. You have got to be kidding me. That had a $33 million budget in 2002 money. Oof, I stand corrected. So hold on, let's let's do a live experiment here. Let's do a quick inflation calendar just to see real quick. I thought that so, movie was made with like 20 bucks and good wishes. If in 2002... So that's about 51 million in today. So the Paul W.S. Anderson Resident Evil film had effectively double the budget of this. I am instantly more impressed with this movie. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, William Birkin. So, William Birkin, his... I don't know. I don't know how to feel about him. <laughs> I feel like... Uh, <laughs> like, there was not enough backstory for me personally mm-hmm. on him. Like, yes, we see him. He's running the orphanage. He's doing secret experiments on these children but then he's also painted in the light of being this really, really cool father figure for Chris. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he's uh, trying to uh, get the G virus and injects himself, which is true to the story. And that's cool and all, but I just feel like uh, it wasn't enough. I don't really know how to explain and I was it was kind of I was just thrown off altogether about him. One, I was thrown off with the fact that Annette had no story at all to her. Yeah, what she was that was about? Some random. She was a random housewife, and I was really upset about it because I feel like we in the stories we only get Birkin as just G Birkin, and that's the true, you know, the one doing everything behind the yeah, scenes. Yeah, like she's the scientist. She's, yeah. Yeah, she's the one who has to clean up Birkin's mess right. wherever he goes, and just not having she was basically non-existent sherry was basically non-existent too we i don't think has she did she even say a line in a movie i don't even remember yeah if she does it's like two sentences i think i think she describes her scary dream to to her dad and like that's all of her lines which actually that was a kind of cool scene i think she's alluding to like hunters because she said like some green yeah it felt very huntery yeah yeah, which was cool. Even though there just, are no hunters in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Just the lack of Annette, Dr. Annette Birkin, um, mm-hmm. kind of just took away from it for me. And it was weird for him to inject himself and be G. Birkin and still have uh, a lot of brain function and to call out to Chris and such. Like, I wanted him to be the monster that he's in the game where just nothing he calls for sherry like maybe a couple times in the games and that's pretty much yeah. it he's just nothing he's just a monster but he's like his whole personality shifted like turned 180 and everything because it almost seemed like he was regretful of what he did to claire and chris because mm-hmm. he doesn't for yeah. whatever reason we don't know he never experimented on chris and there's a scene where he's in the car of and sherry and he sees claire across the street and he's just kind of like mortified of seeing her um in the flesh again and it's like almost like he's scared of what he did or almost did right to her but then it just turns 180 after he re- um injects himself with the virus and wants to you know kill everything in sight and aiming for chris and like up until mm-hmm. that point, we don't even really see any relationship between Chris and uh, Birkin. We just get it from Chris in this conversation with Claire, but we never see any sort of, uh, you know, it was always a son to me kind of thing. I'm sorry about. Yeah, like a, in an awkward photograph, Which, like that. That's that photo was get. really, really weird and looks super photoshopped because I'm pretty sure <laughs> the picture of Birkin, his actor, I'm pretty sure that's like an actual normal red carpet um picture of him <laughs> that they put in there. Yeah, I was really turned off by that. One of the things that I thought was kind of interesting about Birkin is that he is very underserved by the script. There is an interesting story that they're alluding to. Which is that you have this man who did horrible things to children in an orphanage, presumably given the age of his daughter before he had his daughter. And then in the present, he is trying to atone for the horrors that he committed in the past by being a father figure, not only to his own daughter, Sherry, but to Chris Redfield. And it's just, it's so wild, I guess, because with the changes of Wesker, it's like, 
In that scene, it's like, you know, Wesker barely even knew who Birkin was, but, you know, based off of the actual mm-hmm. lore, they worked together at the Spencer Mansion, and they were scientists together and such, and it was just that whole dynamic between Birkin and Wesker was lost in the scene where Wesker shoots uh, both Annette and Birkin, and it was kind of disappointing. That that whole part, I felt like it was really rushed, I think. It was, and it's it feels very close to good. Like, I think that's what what's sort of challenges me about it is that, like, especially that scene with Wesker and the Birkins is, like, very tense and uncomfortable. And, like, it feels very close to great. And, like, if those characters had all been a little more sketched out, you could have ended up with, like, a scene there that was, like, kind of a nail biter. Like, a real, like, oh my goodness, like, what are these people going to do to each other? Like, I sympathize with this person and I sympathize with this person. And instead, you kind of have these, like, archetypes who don't really know each other, uh, like, engaging in action. It, it just, it, it falls maybe a little flatter than it could have with a little more um, time or character development. Also, interesting um, difference is that uh, both Rick and Annette are very loving towards Sherry in the original. They, yeah. you know, Sherry's kind of inconvenience to Annette, especially in Remake 2, you know, Sherry she doesn't want Sherry to be there. She's yelling at Sherry. Why didn't you stay home? Why didn't you call the police? And Sherry's mm-hmm. like, you know, no one answered. She got scared. And this one, you know, she's hugging Sherry the entire time. It just seems, uh, you know, to really love her. And it's almost as if after he's inject, uh, after Birkin's injected with the virus, he completely forgets about Sherry altogether and just hones in on yeah. uh, Chris. And I know that's for the, the plot because you know he was the father figure to Chris but it kind of sucks that because in the original there are times when Birkin is moaning Sherry's name and that's replaced with Chris and that kind of sucked to me yeah like in the source material like the way that Birkin behaves is both scary and deeply sad and you don't really get any of that here yeah he does a complete 180 with his personality and I can that location uh, in the uh, or under the mansion, the laboratories. That's kind of gonna go into the size of Raccoon City because I feel like I was confused about the layout of everything. I-, I feel like that's kind of one of the big differences between like a really well staged action and horror movie or like a really like okay one is that really well staged ones you know where everything is. Like they define the space really well because you knowing where things are in relation to each other is part of why it's scary. But, like, when you don't know those things, you can only get scared by, like, the immediate punchy things on screen, which reduces this entire layer of uh, terror that could exist otherwise. Well, why don't we uh, move along to final impressions, folks? Uh, Spencer, what did you think of this movie overall? So as I said, uh, I kind of liked it. Some of the 
like the technical stuff behind the filmmaking was not good, but the cast was pretty charismatic. I thought a lot of the, I don't know if fan service is the right term for it, but Mm -hmm. the ways that they just kept trying to throw fan candy in there, Mm -hmm. I think was, it was a mixed bag, but it was mostly harmless. So, you know, even some, the thing with itchy tasty were like the creepy neighbors, like write it in blood on the window and stuff like that. That was really hand handed, but even the whole thing with, uh, you know, putting the Redfields and Lisa and William Birkin together, you know, they clearly did that because they wanted to fit in those aspects of the game, but it has a setup, it has a payoff, and it has an explanation. So, you know, how much can you really complain about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's paced really briskly, which is nice. Like, you never really feel bored during this. Yeah. I don't think we, this came up specifically, so I, I don't know how we missed this, but this has at least one... I mean, it's there's some parts that I thought were pretty funny, but there was a laugh out loud moment for me toward the end. We get an Easter egg into Code Veronica with the Ashford twins. <laughs> oh, right, right. right. So it shows the clip from the game where they're pulling like the wings off the dragonfly and then they, you know, look at each other and get real close. So it kind of looks like they're about to kiss. But then in this, at the end of that, it just cuts to William Birkin standing in a corner with a shit eating grin on his face, like <laughs> nodding, like excitedly <laughs> at him. And that was so funny to me. It was just so weird to see that and then just cut to William Birkin. Just really That was one of the it. scenes of the movie to me. That was so absurd and hilarious. I think our entire theater burst out laughing. It made no sense yeah. to me. I was like, oh, so we're doing Cole Veronica now. Okay. Right. Ah, uh, yes. Per- <laughs> they pulled the wings off the dragonfly just like I hypothesized. <laughs> like, what's he doing there? Right? He has like a clipboard and everything, like writing it down. Yeah, it feels like something out of an Ed Wood movie. Like, that is so tonally yeah. off the wall in this. I'm just, I'm glad it made it into the final cut. But it really makes you wonder what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it was really funny. Um, <laughs> and, you know, as positive as I am on this, I mean, I, I don't, re- I'm trying not to oversell it. You know, we mentioned the Rotten Tomatoes scores. We had like 69% audience score. That, like, feels right to me. I mean, that's about a C minus. Yeah. This feels like a C minus movie. Um, I, you know, that's not good, but that's a lot better than, you know, 29, like the solid F that I went into this <laughs> expecting it to be. So, like, don't go out of your way to see this. But, I mean, I'll, if you're a Resident Evil fan, I think this is, this is a hell of a lot better than Infinite Darkness, which we also talked about, you know? Like, you, like this is fine to throw on if you've got nothing else to do when this eventually hits Netflix. I'd give this a watch. I don't know. What about you, Chris? I am about where you are on this, Spencer. Um, I went into it with pretty low expectations. Frankly, I go into any adaptation of Resident Evil with very low expectations. I've been trained in that. Um, And I would say that it pretty much fulfilled them. It, like, it didn't, um, it didn't really impress me in a huge way. Um, I thought it fell short in a lot of ways that we've kind of explicated at length here. Um, But I think it was buoyed very heavily by some cool set design. I thought the Spencer Mansion and the RPD looked incredible. I really did think that the the performances kind of uplifted this from what might have otherwise been uh, a real disappointment. Um, You know, Claire and Leon's portrayals were really excellent. 
uh, Jill was miles ahead of what she is in the original Resident Evil. Um, this was a different take on her character than was given in the Resident Evil 3 remake, where I also thought Jill was portrayed really well. But I love what the actress did with the character of Jill here. As much as Wesker isn't Wesker in this, I thought that the actor did a good job uh, being what the script called for Wesker to be. And of course, Chief Irons is just a scenery-chewing delight. So, um, you know, really, I, I think it's the performances that kind of carry this. Somewhat in contrast to the Paul W.S. Anderson movie, and we did get a question on Twitter from a listener um, asking about how we would compare this to the Paul W.S. Anderson movie. I would say, overall, this is less successful to me. Um, and, I, you know, a, a lot of people would obviously disagree with that. This is much truer to the games than the Anderson movie. But I like that the Anderson movie went in kind of a bananas, wild, different direction. And, um, you know, kind of established its own continuity. Whereas this establishes this continuity that's sort of like the Resident Evil games, but just off a little bit. And, and to that extent, I think it, it dropped the ball to a certain extent. It, it just, it doesn't quite nail the intensity or scariness or scale of a number of things from the game, certainly in how the city is destroyed. Uh, and, and so it, it ends up just squarely in the middle for me. I think uh, a minus is a really apt way to describe it. How about you, Namu? I'm... Uh... If it isn't already clear, <laughs> I'm the complete opposite. I thought this movie <laughs> was absolutely terrible. <laughs> I went yeah. in with low expectations, and I was even... It was worse than I thought it was going to be, personally. I... Mm -hmm. Like you say, I thought the actors did a great job for what they were given, what the scripts wanted from wanted from them and such. I thought the actors were great. I enjoyed each of the character. Irons was one of my favorite characters of all of them. Because um, I didn't even care for Irons in the game. But I enjoyed how no. he portrayed the character in the movies. But I just think the obvious major differences from the story in the original to this one just kind of just really threw me off. It was just too many differences, mm -hmm. personally. I... Absolutely love Resident Evil 3, and this movie definitely destroys the existence of Resident Evil 3 completely. Yeah, it just abandons um, it. Mm -hmm. There's no Tyrant, or not Tyrant, well, yeah, there's no Tyrant, there's no Nemesis, there's no Carlos, there's no, you know, Jill trying to escape by herself in the city. They just completely eliminate mm -hmm. that storyline. And I read somewhere that the, uh, the director, he's interested in... Um, a sequel and he wants to do Code Veronica in 4 and hmm. I am horrified at that thought. <laughs> it's very um, hard to imagine. Because 4 <laughs> four is my second favorite yeah. one so <laughs> I'm like oh no. But um, I'm just uh, also like slightly intrigued at how it would go but I, I was just disappointed in the differences. I know this is just a retelling and you know they don't have to be completely true to the story but I just felt like there was not enough true to the story for me to enjoy it. I feel like if you never played a single Resident Evil game, if you went to see this movie, you would not have known what in the world was happening and would have been confused by a lot. I felt like this was strictly for Resident Evil fans. Yeah. And then even then, it wasn't that good. 
Yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of awkwardly in the middle, right? Like, at least the, the Anderson movie was, like, pitched so that anybody could be into it. But this is kind of pitched at fans and falls short. I'm probably part of the small percentage that actually like the Anderson films. Like, I especially yeah, really like the first one. I felt like, compared to each other, I felt like this one was true to the story compared to the other films. But I felt the other films were more especially the first one did a great job with the atmosphere of the yeah umbrella nest and raccoon city like the the fear of okay zombie apocalypse is happening waking up uh having to infiltrate umbrella to get the uh, vaccine and such like i felt like they did such a great job with that aspect of resident evil that was lacking in this mm-hmm. film like this film i didn't find this film scary at all i didn't it was just uh um, I don't even know how to explain it. It wasn't scary to me, but I I felt like with the other films, it had that that element of suspense and horror that is usually in a Resident Evil game. I, I think overall, I give it a Z. <laughs> <laughs> super super bad in my opinion. <laughs> Resident Evil Z. <laughs> Right. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of our coverage of Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Namu, where can listeners find you? So I usually stream on twitch.tv slash supernamu, but you can always catch me on twitter.com slash super underscore namu or various other social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok, where it's just supernamu. I'm all over the place, to be honest. Uh, As for us, um, you can find us on uh, Twitter at franchise underscore fest. Uh, You can find me on Twitter uh, using the handle at breakman90. Um, And otherwise, you can uh, find us online at franchisefestivalpodcast.com. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash franchisefestival. So I hope you'll consider that. The uh, next bonus episode that we're putting out for patrons only is a year-end wrap-up where we cover our favorite games of 2021. As ever, we're your hosts, Chris. I'm Spencer. And I'm Supernamu. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye.